Welcome to Get Real, talking mental health and disability, brought to you by the team at Irma365. Join our hosts, Emily Webb and Carenza Louis-Smith, as we have frank and fearless conversations with special guests about all things mental health and complexity. Get Real is recorded on the unceded lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge that the first peoples of Australia are the first storytellers, the first artists and the first creators of culture, and we celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories. I love working in settings where we're creating opportunities for people to thrive in life and really sort of realise their full potential and who they want to be and how they want to live their lives. We really can't be of service to anybody else if we're not looking after ourselves and keeping our own house in order. And so for me, that's a, it's a really sort of vital requirement. Hi, I'm Emily Webb and I'm joined by Irma365 CEO and co-host of Get Real, Carenza Louis-Smith. Hi, Carenza. Hi, Em. And we've been working on getting this episode's guest on for ages, and we are thrilled that Marcel Mogg, CEO of Mental Health Victoria, has joined us. Hello, Marcel. Hi, Emily. Hi, Carenza. Mental Health Victoria is the peak body for mental health and well-being in Victoria. And for our overseas listeners, and we have several thousand which we're thrilled about, Victoria is the second smallest state in Australia, land size-wise but has the second highest population with approximately 6.5 million residents. So there's a lot of people's mental health and well-being to consider. Mental Health Victoria, and we'll probably shorthand its name to MHV at times during this conversation, drives policy, advocacy, workforce training, best practice and much more. Any organisation that operates within or intersects with the mental health system in Victoria, and Irma 365 is one of these, can become members of Mental Health Victoria to connect with others, collaborate and contribute to policy development, among other things. MHV's purpose is to ensure that people living with a mental illness can access effective and appropriate treatment and community support to enable them to participate fully in society. Now, Karenza, I always like hearing CEOs of mental health and disability and social services organisations talk with each other. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And before we dive into chatting with Marcel, Karenza, can you tell listeners and me about your relationship with MHV and why Irma values its involvement with the organisation? I think you summed it up at the start and when you described MHV's purpose. MHV, you know, really exists to ensure that people with mental illness can access effective and appropriate treatment and support. But the service system is really, really hard to navigate, really difficult. You can imagine a bowl of spaghetti. Sometimes I think that's what it feels like. So having an organisation that can try and pull all of those pieces of spaghetti together and help to unravel them is a really crucial part of having a world-class mental health system. And I think that's what MHV does. It brings together this broad community, broad church, if you like, of services and, you know, diversity of services and connects them in a way that services couldn't do on their own. So as a member of MHV, we're really proud to be a member and proud to be part of an organisation that really is striving to bring about, I think, the design and delivery of a world-class mental health service system. And ultimately, at the end of the day, a service system where people can get access to the treatments and supports that they need when and where they need it. 
And as the CEO, you know, Marcel plays a huge pivotal role in, in, in doing that. So Marcel, you've been the CEO now at MHV since around the middle of last year. And gee, you've walked into a big job with, with some ambitious goals and things that the organisation wants to do. But before we get to that, could you tell us a bit about your previous experience in, I guess, health and social services and how this has led you personally to MHV? So I've spent most of my working life in healthcare or community services for a shorter period as well during that time. So I think that what I see and one of the big attraction points for me to come to Mental Health Victoria was the opportunity to work explicitly in the mental health sector and at a time of significant change. Probably like so many people listening today and so many of the people that we work with and serve, Both myself and my family have experience of mental health challenges and vulnerabilities in life. And so I think I've been in the privileged position of being able to sort of look at our services here in Victoria from the perspective of consumers, carers, and the clinical and allied service providers. So when you spoke earlier, Karenza, about that bowl of spaghetti, I actually think you're being a bit generous. I think spaghetti can look a little more coordinated at times than our incredibly challenged mental health care system. And that is not to say that there is not some excellent services and initiatives within our mental health system. I think absolute credit to people who've been advocating for decades in mental health care and for service providers. There's been some extraordinary initiatives come to the fore. I think, you know, perhaps out of that chaos, it has meant that some people have stepped up and really led some extraordinary initiatives and planted a bit of a, you know, flag in the ground for sort of great service and great care. So I think for me, in light of the Royal Commission reforms, the opportunity to work in and with the sector and alongside consumers and alongside carers and service providers to really ensure, as you've said, Karenza, that world-class provision of service access and equity for Victorians when and where they need care was the really sort of critical driver for me. Because I think in Victoria, we're very fortunate. We've got some really brilliant services in other parts of our community, other parts of healthcare, other parts of education. Why not in mental health? I think for too long, it has relied on goodwill and not enough good funding and good coordination. So I think this is an opportunity to change that and change that for the better not only for those within the sector, but for the entire Victorian community, because at some point, pretty much everybody is going to have an intersection with the mental health care system and we'll be calling on and looking for support. So we want to be sure that we're there when people need us and that we're providing the very best experience for people at that time. And it's not a big ask, is it, to be able to get access to support when you want it, where you want it and how you need it. I mean, let's let's face it, you know, if I was given a diagnosis of cancer, I would expect to get world-class treatment from the best practitioners in that field and have the opportunity for a full recovery. So here you are, you've, you've joined MHV right in the middle of, you know, the, the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. The reports have been handed down, changes happening and coming. How is that? Is it daunting? Is it exciting? What does that feel like for you walking into a job with such a huge mandate to try and be part of? Look, it's enormously exciting because it precisely because it is the first time in quite literally 20 to 30 years that there has been some agreement as to what we should be working towards achieving. I came into healthcare at a time when the institutions that were providing mental health care in the old days were being decommissioned. 
I actually had a short period of time working in one of those at Royal Park here in Melbourne. So I saw from inside that service what that experience had been like, even though it was just a snapshot, I sort of saw something of what that experience had been like. And and it was immediately clear why that needed to change and why that needed to be replaced by something better. And I saw the great optimism of moving to community-based mental health services. And I'm absolutely on board with that and the need for different models of care that absolutely put the experience of people front and centre of that experience of access to care and the experience and the model of care that forms part of that. But of course, in the years subsequently, what I saw was the lack of funding the lack of coordination, the lack of political priority and policy development that meant that that model of care really had the opportunity to thrive and to realise the aspirations that underpinned it. And so I think for me, yes, this is an incredibly exciting moment in our Victorian history to do something really radical and necessary, but it is daunting because the degree of change that's required is immense. The complexity is entrenched. I think there's a an understandable degree of hesitancy amongst those who've been around for a long time of, are we actually going to be able to do it this time? Are we actually going to be able to drive the needed change over this 10-year horizon and sustain the momentum and coordinate our efforts in order to realise the outcomes that we all want? I don't think there's any disagreement about what it is that we want, but there's going to be a lot of disagreement about how we get there. I think that's where the daunting part of the challenge comes in. But I think probably like many people listening today who are involved in this transformation of if we don't grasp this opportunity, we will only have ourselves to blame if we don't realise this and if we don't give it our absolute everything to make it work. You know, you mentioned that you had a little bit of experience earlier in your career when it was the old days of the institutions. And I'm always fascinated by people's backgrounds and yours is particularly interesting. You were a nurse you did further study psychology and MBA, which is no no easy feat. And you've had significant time in, in Catholic organisations that provide health and social services. So I'd love to know what drives you in your work, because it's not an easy sector. It's complicated. The bowl of spaghetti, you're right. I mean, spaghetti's great, but it's messy, right? So <laughs> the needs of people and communities is huge. And I mean, I know for me, I was quite naive in thinking years ago, well, my mental health's fine. I'm, I'm not going to need anything like that. And it's true that you just don't know, and especially with COVID, that kind of brought it all out to the fore. People can burn out in this sector. You know, their passion gets exhausted. So what drives you? How do you keep going in this space? I think, Emily, it's one of the things I think that probably the common thread through the various sort of places that I've worked, there's probably two aspects to it. One, I love working in settings where we're creating opportunities for people to thrive in life and really sort of realise their full potential and who they want to be and how they want to live their lives. So particularly in sort of the mental health care setting, for me, that's fundamentally what this is about. It's about reducing the distress and the anxiety and the impediments in people's lives so that they can thrive. They can absolutely live the lives that they want to live, be connected to community, connected to the people that they love, forge lives of meaning and value and contribution. And I think the other part of what drives me is 
I love discovering how people make meaning in their lives. So I'm always fascinated by that in terms of how people find purpose, both individually and at a communal level in life, and how they form those sort of connections. So I think for me, the common driver in all of that is really creating opportunity for people to live lives of purpose and meaning. And so for me, the ability to sort of see the threads of that in the Royal Commission, and I think you know, the fact that the Royal Commission sort of spoke so clearly and resoundingly about the voice of those with lived and living experience being at the centre, not only of the design and the delivery of service, but the centre of our focus of our efforts. I mean, it's kind of awful that it needed to be sort of said and stated so boldly, but it did. And mental health sector is not immune in that. Let me add that really quickly. You know, healthcare more broadly has been talking about person-centred care since I started training late last century. And, you know, education, we'll talk about the focus on children and young people. So mental health is not alone in terms of being at risk of losing sight of why we exist and what's really important here. But for me, that's one of the sort of the key drivers is just making sure that I keep visibility and I keep front of mind that clear purpose as to why Mental Health Victoria exists and why I turn up for work each day and why it's important for me to galvanise my team and connect with the sector and connect with all parts of the sector is to keep faith with that ultimate focus that we are here to serve other people. We are here to serve the Victorian community. We are here to serve people currently facing mental health challenges and those who are yet to face those challenges but will. And to draw on the deep wisdom that exists around us in informing how we can do it better in future. So MHV has got a pretty awesome patron, so Professor Alan Fells. Now, he gave a really strong address to Mental Health Victoria's general meeting last year in November. And I wanted to quote a little bit from it because I think it expands on, I guess, the the previous part of the conversation and why Mental Health Victoria is such an important organisation when we're thinking about this design. I mean, as you said, there are so many people to try and bring together. And so what he said was MHV's membership is now much broader than other state or national mental health peak bodies. And that has been noticed by governments who are more used to dealing with diverse and differing groups of stakeholders rather than working towards one shared goal. I think that's really powerful because I think when, you, when you're trying to create and make something, if everyone isn't on the same bus, then we're going to go in multiple directions and not get what's in the best interests. And I think, Marcel, you nailed it when you said putting people who need mental health supports at the centre of that. And so if we go in different directions, we're never going to achieve that. So MHV's done a lot of work to try and actually bring this really broad group of services. I mean, we're talking clinical services as well as community-based services. It's a big system. Bring it together. And I think MHV is more and more acting as this unified voice for mental health here in Victoria and bringing services together. So I'm, I'm really keen to understand from your perspective, what do you think is working well? And in that, how does MHV, I guess, keep the needs of consumers, families, carers, communities and workforce at the top of mind and at the same time influence things around, I guess, service system design, funding, change? It's, it's a lot of balls in the air that you are juggling as an organisation to pull all those bits together. It is incredibly complex and I think there are 
times at MHV when we feel we're making some really good gains in terms of coordinating that effort and building those relationships. And there are times when it can feel very thin and like it's all about to just blow apart. So I wouldn't want people to feel that it's, you know, under our control or it's it's on track all the time. It, it really is a bit of a dance, I suspect, between um, those different parts of the system. I think rather than Mental Health Victoria being a unified voice, what we try to be is a unifying voice, and that's maybe semantics, but because it is that engagement all the time, because what Mental Health Victoria is advancing is in fact what our stakeholders are telling us, our stakeholders being all of those different parts of the mental health system and community speaking to us and speaking together and trying to to distill that into some really sort of common themes and common threads. And so while I think the Royal Commission is probably the single greatest distillation of those voices, and which is why those recommendations and the findings and the reports of the Royal Commission are so valuable, you know, it serves as a, a picture of what it is that we're aiming towards. But of course, it only sort of speaks for part of the whole. It didn't sort of look necessarily at services that are funded federally. It didn't necessarily look at all other parts of the healthcare system that intersect with the mental health care services. And mental health as a system doesn't exist in isolation from broader service providers and intersections of community. We know that mental health has deep intersectionality, for example, with alcohol and other drug services and systems and consumer demands. Family violence, homelessness and housing, education, people exiting the justice system. These are all areas that have either currently or the potential to have significant intersectionality with mental health services. Aged care, you know, healthcare more broadly. There's not an aspect of life in the Victorian community where mental health doesn't have a stakehold or a foothold. The workplace across the road from me here in the middle of the CBD there will be mental health concerns amongst the workforce there and access to to services and support. And on any given day, the experience of people's mental health and wellbeing will be impacted by their workplace, their family relationships, the economic circumstances in which they find themselves. So distilling all of that is an ongoing challenge, no doubt about it. But I think for me, one of the things of looking at the mental health system, particularly just looking back, not getting trapped in the history, but looking back over the last 20 to 30 years and the hollowing out of the sector and the service provision means, for my money at least, that we actually need all of the current players around the table. So while the voice of consumers and carers must be at the forefront in terms of articulating what is required from an excellent mental health and wellbeing system, We actually need all of the providers together at that table playing their part in contributing to the growth and the development and the necessary change. So for me, it's really critical that this time of transformation is not a time of picking winners and losers, where some people sort of get to step up and other people sort of fall off the edge, because frankly, we need everybody. We actually need everybody pulling together contributing to the whole, contributing to that development. We need the workforce, plain and simple, in order to drive the change. Because, of course, Irma365 will know better than most. We are trying to do two really difficult things at the same time. We are trying to realise a whole new system, as well as continuing to deliver excellent services today. We're building the plane and flying it at the same time, aren't we? 
Absolutely. I think you yeah. hit some really powerful points there. And it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I look at MHV with, you know, admiration. I mean, you're not a huge organization. You don't have bucket loads of money. Let's be really clear here. When you think about all of the challenges, what would be top of your agenda right here, right now? If you were to say, to, you know, it's these two or three things, top of the agenda for MHV, if we were to nail these, I would be absolutely pumped. Look, I think front of mind, it's got to be access. And access as a headline captures a number of sort of key components. So access to care today cannot be sacrificed as we work towards that future model. So, yes, we do have to do two really difficult things at the same time. We can't afford to let people fall by the wayside while we build the new system. We can't afford to lose any more workforce. We cannot afford to compromise on the services that we deliver on the way through. So as a headline, for me, it's about access, which goes to sustainable workforce. It goes to sustainable funding of services and continuity of service provision. It goes to consumer-led, consumer-informed, carer-led, carer-informed models of care. So access to the care that people need today while we build that new model is an imperative. But I think sort of related to that as well would be if I can have two other sort of subheadings, maybe not two other headlines, but two other subheadings. One would be culture, the need for a really strong, collaborative, person-centred culture of leadership of our mental health system. And again, that comes back to, you know, why do any of us exist? as service providers, as advocates, whomever. It's not about ourselves and our own empires, as it is about the community that we exist to serve. And I'm really mindful of that at Mental Health Victoria because we're in a tertiary sort of setting. We are not providers of service. We are supporting those who provide services and supporting those who access services. So for me, it's it's really critical sort of that we keep top of mind why we exist and who we exist to serve. But I think that sort of culture of, of leadership of being informed by that on a day-to-day level is is really sort of critical. And I think it's also one of the reasons why uh, when Mental Health Victoria particularly looks to engage with government and or with the department, we can play a critical role because we can provide the link into that grassroots experience. You know, we really try and keep that grassroots experience front of mind for ourselves and keep it in front of the mind of those who are making the decisions at the top of the tree, as it were. Look, it boils down to a really sort of simple equation. And Emily, my MBA colleagues will be really cross at me for distilling it this simply. But for me, it boils down to human opportunity and economic opportunity are absolutely hand in glove. So if I'm, you know, in charge of Treasury in Victoria, and I think we're all glad that I'm not, but you look at creating opportunities where people can access care in order to thrive and get on with their lives. You look at reducing cost by creating better access to well-funded services when and where people need them because human opportunity and economic opportunity are hand in glove. So when humans thrive, the economics thrive. When humans are facing burdensome cost in their lives in terms of their own experience and their own inability to thrive, guess what? the bill for the state government, the federal government just goes through the roof. So the more that we can invest in people and people's experience, in fact, the economics follows from that. So as I say, there'll be economists falling over, but that's my take on it. And the evidence that I've seen backs that up. So that's what I'll continue to push for. 
We'll be back after a short break. We recognise people with lived experience of mental ill health and disability, as well as their families and carers. We recognise their strength, courage and unique perspective as a vital contribution to this podcast so we can learn, grow and achieve better outcomes together. We'd love you to share Get Real with your family and friends. You can also rate and review Get Real on your preferred podcast listening player. Your reviews help people find us. At Irma 365, we believe in the potential of everyone. Irma 365 is a lifeline for people who are challenged with complex mental health and disability. Our work supports people to improve their quality of life and reach their personal potential. We walk side by side with people, providing them with the support they need to live the lives they want within a supportive community. Find out more about Irma 365 online at www.irma.org. That's E-R-M-H-A dot org. Looking at the lived and living experience workforce, you've got to make sure that people are equipped to do this job. And we know previously that living experience was often not valued or it's not financially valued. Like people were just expected to give their expertise for free. And that's a really important thing. I think now that people are, they can have some formalised employment in this space, but obviously there needs to be a balance with how people are trained and how they can work in the in the workforce. What is MHV doing, I guess, and what's the top priority in terms of ensuring that the lived and living experience workforce is as strong, as well-organised and supported as it can be? Because it really is going to be a massive part of the employment, the workforce for this new mental health system. Absolutely right, Emily. In really practical terms, Mental Health Victoria provides several different opportunities to physically grow the lived and living experience workforce. And I might just throw in that the team members who actually oversee and drive those Certificate 4 courses that we offer, uh, one is a peer cadet program, the other is a mental health peer worker program, are people with lived and living experience themselves. So we've got the people who live it and have translated their experience into their professional roles, developing the next generation. And the really pleasing thing, I might just sort of say, just as an observation, is looking at the participants in a number of those programs. And these are people with lived and living experience of mental health vulnerability who are changing careers in order to come into the mental health sector because of these pathways. And that's just a win for all of us. So people are coming from established careers in other sort of professions, other sort of areas across the community, but deliberately choosing to work in the mental health sector and to bring their experience to bear in terms of their practice. So that is an absolute joy, I think, in every in every respect. That's a real game changer, isn't it? Because I think if we think about workforce in the past and you think about stigma and discrimination and the fear, I can't tell anybody I've had a mental health diagnosis. You know, you won't hire me, yep. you'll treat me differently. I might get sacked. I mean, that's flipping the script on its head, right? You know, and and what a what a phenomenal outcome if people are coming from other whole bunch of different industries, going, wow, my lived experience yep. means something, or my living experience means something, and I'm not going to have to hide it. I'm going to be Correct. welcomed and embraced. That's bloody powerful, right? And not only welcome, Carenza, but that experience is vital to us. We need that experience. We need that expertise. We need that insight to help improve the system for others today and into the future. 
the other thing that I get really excited about is, is that it's just the tip of the iceberg, that this should not just be about bringing people with lived and living experience into the mental health sector, but into workplaces more broadly across yes. Victoria. Because like every one of you and like every one of your listeners, any social group that I sort of interact with, as soon as I say where I work and what I do, they're like, oh, we need something like that in our workplace. We need something like that in our community group. We need something like that in our school. Because of the universality of mental health vulnerability and challenge and experience, this should not just be a sort of a sector-specific initiative. I see this as the tip of the spear in terms of, yes, bringing people's lived and living experience to work and recognising their expertise and paying people appropriately for it and creating pathways for them into the future. Absolutely, Emily, that is totally non-negotiable. But equally, to come into the mental health workforce and then to normalise bringing that experience into workplaces and community settings more broadly because it, it is it liberates people. We've seen it happen in isolated cases across other aspects of society. I'm thinking about, you know, periodically there'll be a politician who might declare an experience of mental health vulnerability and all of a sudden, guess what? So many people on either sides of the state or federal chamber put their hand up and say, gee, that's been my experience too. Or mm. I've got a child that I'm supporting with that experience or a partner mm. or a parent. You know, it, it normalises it. Yes, it it does. means that people will come forward and access the care and support that they need and they will also draw on the experience and support of others. Well, here's the thing, isn't it? Like one in four Australians we know will experience a mental illness in their lifetime. That's 25% yep. yep. of the community that we're in, right? So yep. it's either you or someone in your family and people that you know. And I, I think this is the really big change, isn't it? If we can talk more, and I think COVID actually gave us the ability to talk more about our mental health. It became okay to say, gee, I'm struggling. I'm not coping. I'm not doing really well here. I'm not I'm not real flash at all. And then as the, and I'm not going to use the word ended because it has hasn't ended. But as normalities return for some people, that's even more terrifying and more frightening, you know. Yes. So I think it's given us permission in a, in a way to talk about mental health that we haven't, I don't think, in the past broadly. And you're right, you go to a barbie and say what you do and people want to have those conversations. Whereas I, I'm not so sure that that would have been the case, you know, a few years ago. It's become quite different. But I'm, I'm curious because you guys, are, in terms of the lived and living experience, and you talked about this, you've got a really innovative peer cadet program that you're doing too. Tell us a bit about the peer cadets and what oh, that look, is. That's, that's incredibly exciting. So the peer cadet program, so Mental Health Victoria provides the statewide coordination of that program in partnership with the Department of Health. And pleasingly, in partnership with nine uh, service providers, community mental health service providers across the state, Irma 365 being one of them, which is brilliant. And so the peer cadet is bringing people with lived and living experience of, of mental health challenge into the workplace, giving them practical on the ground experience and placement experience in mental health settings, developing up their skills, but also helping people to take that lived and living experience and translate it into a professional practice. Because, of course, one of the things that is a real risk here is that we burn people out. Emily, you spoke, I think, earlier about, you know, the risk of sort of burnout and sustaining our energy and enthusiasm for things. And so we want to ensure that we're guarding against risk of burnout and minimising opportunity for that to arise uh, for people, but also to ensure that that lived and living experience has the same standing and recognition and can play its part as part of that design and care delivery team. 
And so I think we want to make sure that people have got that equal footing, that their experience is understood and understood and appreciated in terms of people being able to visibly see the contribution that people with lived and living experience can make in improving access to service, improving the care experience, and and as a consequence, improving the outcomes for people accessing care. You touched then on a bit about burnout, and I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think we're being told that, you know, following COVID, we've had the great resignation. Now we're going to see the great burnout. It's coming, you know, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot going on in the mental health service system here in Victoria. And I think I think the listeners can hear from your voice the energy and excitement that it brings. <laughs> and it does bring that. And that's really awesome. But it can be pretty full on. It can be pretty oh, yeah. tiring at times too. And balancing all of those things when you're trying to generate and lead such a large change. What do you think needs to happen, I guess, at this point? I mean, we're at the start of really with a bold vision, transformation, beginning to put these pieces together. How do we guard against the the great burnout? How do we, you know, not go so fast that the wheels come off the train and it's not on the tracks anymore, you know? And what role does MHV kind of play in that? Because I think, you know, Mm. in the excitement, it's easy to get ahead of ourselves and run (laughs) before we can walk as well, you know, and I've got a natural tendency to do that. You know, I want (laughs) to I want to be at the destination there. Thank you. I don't want to go on the journey to get there. You know, so how do we how do we as sector leaders, you know, CEO to CEO, how do we do that and get people on that journey, you know, so that we get to that destination in a way that we haven't lost things along the way? And I know that's a really big question. One of the privileges of being in the position here at Mental Health Victoria is that I do get to see great things happening across the whole, which is not to sort of say that it doesn't on particular days feel like an absolute grind and just sort of dogged, (laughs) head down, push on through. But I think the other thing is that, you know, it then just takes a sort of a phone call or an engagement with somebody to hear about something fantastic that is happening on the ground. And, you know, so your mood your mood totally changes with that. But I think probably some of the things that Mental Health Victoria has been calling for that are critical to sort of sustaining that energy and the passion and the work, the necessary work and grind of of transforming services is access to clear and transparent performance data and reporting. We need to see that some of the new initiatives that are coming online are physically making a difference in people's lives, that it's improving access, that people are getting access to better experiences of care and getting better outcomes as a consequence. So we need to see that, not only in terms of being accountable for the change that we're driving and delivering, but frankly, just as that sort of psychological lift and boost on the way through. Because, you know, if we're working this hard and not seeing anything change, that quickly becomes utterly demoralising. So the issue around sort of performance data and seeing different outcomes is not just about accountability. It is about helping continue to galvanise us towards that sort of desired outcome. So I think better communications about what has been achieved to date, what is happening and what's about to happen next. I think we've not got that right by any means at the moment. When sort of, what, two and a half, nearly three years into the Royal post-Royal Commission world. So there's an urgent need to get that communications and engagement piece right. And I've been banging on about that since I've been in the role. And we, we're getting there, but not as quickly as I would hope. I will continue to bang on about that. And I think continuing to sort of find opportunities to amplify 
and you know enable the voice of consumers and carers is is particularly vital in all of this. One of the things that I'm really mindful of is the powerful advocacy that has been conducted by consumers, by carers, by service providers for decades. We need to continue that advocacy, but we also then need to move it into this different mode of now building and designing and bringing together in order to create what is required and what is new. So it's a different emphasis in that overarching dynamic. So I don't want to lose the advocacy, but we do need, because we need that kind of accountability call resounding through our sort of transformation process, but it does then need to sort of shift a little bit more into the sort of the constructive building and creating, because we've got this opportunity before us. And really, this is monumental. The fact that we've got a government that's committed to all of the recommendations, that there's bipartisan support for that. We've got modes of funding preserved for this transformation. We're not going to get this opportunity again, potentially in our lifetime. So we have to work together to get it right. It's been really fascinating to hear about, you know, the ways that we need to ensure, you mentioned communications. I'm big on that. It's like, you've got to let people understand what things are, why they're relevant to them. And yeah, we've got lots of money, lots happening, but it's like, how do you make sure that it yeah, keeps rolling as it intends? Marcel, we've spoken a lot about the, you know, the needs of everyone else in this sector, but what about you? We ask this of all our guests, what does self-care look like for you and how mm-hmm. do you take care of your mental health? They're really good questions, Emily. And I also do have to keep that in mind because like everybody listening today, you know, we really can't be of service to anybody else if we're not looking after ourselves and keeping our own house in order. And so for me, that's a, it's a really sort of vital requirement. My partner and I are basically a live-in butler service for a very spoilt seven-year-old husky. And he totally rules our lives, which means that as soon as I get through the door, the first issue is, you know, change into the walking shoes and get him, getting him out for a walk every day because I will not get a minute's peace, you know, until he's been out and walked. And that's a really good discipline for me because I think left to my own devices, I'd just collapse on the couch and try and switch off and, and just sort of chill out. So I think just that routine engagement is really critical. But time with my partner and time with family and friends is really important. I'm actually, despite the fact that I can talk incessantly, I'm actually an introvert by nature. So for me, having time out and time to myself is really important. But if I spend too much time by myself, I fall into a hole. Getting that balance right and making sure that I stay engaged with the people around me, that I don't cancel social engagements, but I go to them because as soon as I get there, I actually love it and I'm fine. But overcoming that hurdle sometimes of getting out the door or whatever, or the temptation to just stay on the couch can be really hard to overcome. So pushing through that challenge, and I'm always grateful for it. I never sort of regret the opportunity of getting out and engaging with people. And I've got to say, Emily, and Corinza will laugh at this, I'm sure. For me, one of the warning signs that I'm losing the plot is when I stop laughing. I am somebody who laughs frequently and often. And so I know that I'm starting to fray when I stop laughing and particularly when I stop laughing at myself. So when I've lost that ability, I know I've got things out of whack and it's a nice threshold test I've found that's sort of pretty high up the food chain so that it's a bit of an early warning indicator for me of 
no, you've got to step back. You've got to recalibrate here, take some time out, connect with people, go and see a show, go and see a film, walk the dog again. For me, having, you know, tuning into those early warning indicators is really critical. I think that's a really great question, Em, that you ask every guest, you know, because I mean, I think, Marcel, in your case, when we're talking about such major reform and the role that Mental Health Victoria is playing, I think that's really, really important. You know, how do we how do we ground ourselves? What are the things that we do? How do we take care of our own mental health? You know, and sometimes working in this industry, we can be the worst people for doing it. Um, sure. It's like the plumber that never fixes their own bathroom. You know, that's <laughs> so I think that the, the challenge is there for us. And I know, I know our listeners really enjoy listening to that question. And I've taken inspiration from that question, too. And in fact, I've recently started taking up and doing yin yoga. And if you told me six months ago that I'd be in a yin yoga session cleansing my chakras, I would have said that you had rocks in your head. And yet I found it to be one of the most relaxing, beautiful experiences I think I'd ever had in my lifetime. So there's something, isn't there, about suspending our judgments about things and actually embracing things that are different, which is really what this whole reform is about. It's about how do we come together? How do we embrace change? How do we do that in a way that people who need, and you've said this so many times in this interview, how do people with mental health problems in their lives, right, here I am at home, get the help they need, when they need it, where they need it, and how they need it. And I think Mm -hmm. if we can achieve that, we have done something totally awesome, you know, for Victorians, and we'll have created that um, world-class mental health system. And I know every time I watch what MHV does with the little that it has, I'm just in awe of you, Marcel, and your team, and the advocacy work, the policy work um, that MHV really leads for, and in my view, people who are accessing and wanting to and needing to access services. And I think you do it in a way that make service providers sit up, take note and come along on that journey. So, yeah, as I said, I am in awe and it's been awesome oh, having you, you um, as a guest on this podcast, hasn't it, Em? Yeah, it's been great. I find it just really fascinating how organisations work, really, and and the passion that people have. And just wondering, as we wind up, have we got any final thoughts? Oh, thanks, Emily. And Corinza, thank you for the very kind words too. I've really got to pass those on to the team. You know, having been in the role for only nine months, I feel like I'm sailing on the credit and hard work of others. Look, I I suppose just for me, I'm enormously grateful for the opportunity to work in this sector and to work with Mental Health Victoria and to work with our partners like Irma 365, with other providers, with consumers and carers. There are exceptional people working in every part of this mental health system who are totally committed to bringing about the best outcomes for other people. And that's not just inspiring, but it's that's what keeps me turning up for work because I just want to sort of work alongside really great people who are interested and interesting and committed to realising better outcomes for other people. You know, I, I grew up genuinely believing that good people can do great things when they work together. You know, it's really not much more complicated than that. I think we can overcomplicate it at times. But if Mental Health Victoria can play a role in bringing those good people together in the pursuit of better outcomes, then I'll be really proud of of what we can achieve in that space. And it, it really is what is Mental Health Victoria about. It's about harnessing that talent and enthusiasm and commitment of others 
in in the pursuit of better outcomes for Victorians with respect to their mental health. So it's simple and complex and (laughs) exciting and daunting and most of those things on any day, really. (laughs) So it's a delight. It's a delight to be part of. It's the human experience, isn't it? Every day it's uh, – and Carenza, what about you? I know, um, you know, you're, you're in the thick of it in this like <laughs> Oh, look, I, everything that Marcel said and more, you know, I, I, I think that's so important. And I think, again, men, Mental Health Victoria leads – plays, if you like, such a critical part in helping us to redesign and recreate and make a better world-class mental health system. And I think Marcel's right. It can be really simple. Got to get out of the way and let it be simple and not overcomplicated. And of course, you know, all all other states and no doubt the federal government have got all eyes on what's happening in Victoria, which is really fantastic. You know, Victoria, it's trailblazing this arena. So it's no doubt we'll be having more conversations, but Marcel, again, thank you. Your time, you know, and Carenza, you're busy, but it's great that you've made the opportunity to talk to us. You can find out more about Mental Health Victoria online at mhvic.org.au and we'll have details in the show notes for this episode, as well as some other useful resources from MHV, including about the Peer Cadet Program as well. So thanks again, Marcel and Carenza, and looking forward to bringing you more conversations in the coming weeks. You've been listening to Get Real, talking mental health and disability, brought to you by the team at Irma365. Get Real is produced and presented by Emily Webb with Carenza Louis-Smith and special guests. If you've been affected by anything discussed in this podcast, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go to lifeline.org.au. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.